You're listening to Don't Repeat This, the show where we talk about the stuff you're not supposed to bring up at the dinner table. I'm Gail, and today we'll turn the tables as my guest will be interviewing me. Josiah Meyer is the co-host of the podcast, Seeking Help, where he and his wife and Jessica Meyer talk about a lot of the topics we've covered on our podcast, dealing with deconstruction, abortion, and all kinds of harder topics. We met online because we were both in the process of deconstruction, which is another way of saying taking apart unhealthy beliefs we grew up with, often in a religious context. Today we'll be talking about going no contact with a parent, and I'd like to give a content warning for this episode. Although we usually cover hard topics, I grew up in a foster home with a pedophile foster father and a psychopath foster mom. So this episode is going to dive into my own past of trauma and what healing looks like on the other side of that. We will cover what boundaries look like, what unhealthy family dynamics can look like, and how messages of my faith experience had been a help and also a hindrance. We will cover the best ways to help people who've lived through abuse and also how to respond to those who disclose abuse. But before we get there, I just want to warn that we'll be talking about child abuse and sexual abuse. So if any of these topics are not helpful for you to listen to right now, I just want to give you a safe off-ramp. And we look forward to you joining us on our next episodes. Josiah brought up the topic of going no contact with your parents. When we were thinking through things we have in common, he shares more of his story in an episode of his podcast called Domestic Abuse, I'm a Survivor. And so without any further introduction, let me take you right to my discussion with Josiah. So I would love that if you could tell me something good about your childhood, something bad about your childhood, and something weird about your childhood. Just, who is Gail? Oh, okay. All right. I'm trying to think. Maybe I should give the overview because, you know, we were were discussing what topics we could get into. And, you know, you said we wanted to talk about this. I think liking talking about this topic, it's a little bit hard on both of our ends. Probably it's not the most enjoyable or pleasant topic, but like you said, it's, it's uh, something I definitely feel needs to be discussed. A lot of people don't know what to do when they're in an unhealthy scenario with family. And I always feel like talking about things helps other people to feel like, I think stigma often keeps us stuck in different places where we feel like it's wrong to discuss these things. And definitely abuse is one of those topics that you're told not to talk about. You know, you just, yeah. um, you're just you're taught to feel ashamed of what you've been through. And you naturally do without even anyone telling you yeah. to feel ashamed. You, you That being abused comes with a lot of shame. So I feel like the more I talk about it, the more I give permission to others to realize they're not alone either and that they shouldn't be ashamed, um, even if they have those yucky feelings that make them feel like they're the problem that they're not. So for myself... Um, I mean, I'm going to be talking about my foster parents, actually, who are my primary caregivers. Um, I grew up in foster care from, I'm going to say, before I could even remember, like maybe I was six months, one year. I don't know how old I was when they signaled a youth protection uh, government agency to kind of step in in my scenario. And initially, we were in foster care on weekends to give my parents reprieval. Um, my dad had a lot of mental health issues. He... Uh, he had learning disabilities. He had schizoaffective disorder. Uh, he was challenged in many different areas um, and mentally young. Uh, and same with my mom, maybe not the amount of uh, challenges as my dad, but mentally also um, not able. Both of my parents just not in a position to raise, raise kids. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were placed permanently in a full-time foster care uh, where we switched from just giving my parents a reprieval on weekends to actually they probably shouldn't watch us full-time um, and we ended up in foster care five days a week and actually only our parents we've always been in, in contact with our, my sister and I with our biological parents on weekends so mm-hmm. I've kept up a relationship with my parents so I guess when I say my parents I still have a little um, uncomfortableness calling my foster parents my parents because I tried to separate out those two for myself yeah um, especially with the abuse but uh, my foster parents were my primary parents like they were the ones they were my parental guardians authorities ones who signed all the papers for the teachers in schools and you know, were in charge of my care and who I, you know, woke up in their house five days a week and went to bed in their homes five days a week and where I had, you know, had to to live my life most of the time, except Mm -hmm. for weekends. So um, I think I'll stick to calling them my foster parents. I should probably um, just give a broad overview. I, yeah, they they took us in, my sister and I I was um, five years old when I first went, when I first moved in with them. And um, at age 15, uh, things got 
you know, to the point where I had the bravery just to, to speak out. And actually we had tried many times to, but it was a time where we were taken seriously. And actually uh, the people who I call my foster parents today uh, are not the people who I grew up with as foster parents. They rescued my sister and I out at age, I was 15, she was 13. And they were taken seriously because they were also foster parents. And they mm -hmm. had a lot of connections in the system and uh, social workers and they like their voices mattered to the system. Whereas a yeah. lot of people who tried to intervene for us, um, they weren't listened to, uh, unfortunately, like yeah. our chances are even teachers who tried to intervene, uh, we weren't taken out before who I consider my foster parents today when I talk about my, like sometimes if I discuss online a bit about my story, I'll try and specify the people who I identify as foster parents today are not the abusers I'm talking about in my yeah. childhood story because they rescued me out of that and I don't want them associated to, you know, so it's a little confusing in that way. But for mm -hmm. the sake of today, if I reference foster parents, I'll be talking about the people I grew up with uh, from five to 15 in my abusive foster home yeah. and not who I moved in with when I was a, older teenager um, who did a lot of help for us in looking after us and helping us get healing. So, so can you help paint the picture? Like, were you kind of middle class? I know you come from Canada. You don't have to get real specific, but oh, like, yeah. what, Canadian, what did your both childhood of us kind of look like? Yeah. We both speak French, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. totally so, confuse people by having some words in French, but that's annoying, so I won't do that. So, um, uh, yeah, my, both my biological parents were definitely in the poorer class. Uh, maybe not my dad raised in that so much, but, um, with the, all his limitations, he definitely, uh, had a harder time holding down jobs. And, um, we ended up on welfare, which is like the Canadian version of social security that actually exists in this country. Thank God. <laughs> thank yeah. God we're not in the U S I often think of both my parents, uh, biological parents and how they wouldn't have been able to survive had they been in the U S with the, yeah. with this, the, health issues and um, mental health issues that they had uh, have. Um, so yeah, grew up, yeah, poor. Basically, um, the, my, my biological parents didn't have a lot. And my foster parents were more middle class. They, um, they looked down at my biological parents for the fact that they were poor. And they made comments about it continually about mm -hmm. how my, they'd be like, oh, you guys were, were born into filth and you grew up in filth and they would i mean when my biological mom would drop me off uh after the weekend was done my foster mother would take out a can of aerosol and spray down the chair my mom my bio mom would sit on just wow. to like say she re revolts her and was disgusting to the point where it made her stomach want to throw up like the the shame i guess and the need to like continuously make me feel as though I come from something inferior. You know, she'd mm. talk about how she owned a house and we lived in an apartment with our parents. So it was like, oh, you guys are from nothing. You're nobody's. Like there, there was so much verbal abuse um, mm. in terms of just putting us down. Um, yeah, so it was, uh, I guess that's the, the status in terms of both uh, the, the economic situations of my uh, biological parents versus my foster parents who I grew up with. Um, good memories eh that was an interesting one when you said it something good from childhood I'm like ooh, it's so hard <laughs> it's so hard of a question um you know I definitely going home on weekends was the highlight of my really? my childhood okay. <laughs> that was like a break and a reprieval and a chance for me to catch my breath I have a little bit more normal memories with my limited parents um they didn't have money. So like Christmas time, uh, actually the person, here's an interesting story uh, tying into childhood. The person who I was named after, her name is also Gail, was my mom's best friend uh, in school growing up. Um, and she took a liking to my mom. Who, my mom was very bullied with her limits or social mm -hmm. limitations. But this, this person named Gail would just reach out to my mom and include her. And eventually her friend said, look, if you want to hang out with her, we're not going to be your friend anymore. And yeah. as a child, my mom's friend was like, nope, I'm sticking by her no matter what. And as my mom got older, she always kept in touch. Uh, my mom moved to Canada. She was originally from the States. My birth okay. mom grew up and lived in the States her childhood and young adulthood and then moved here and met my dad through her brother, who was a, dropped, a dra draft dodger, dodging the wars in the States. She came, came up to Canada as a way to not be drafted. And so my mom followed her brother when she was an adult um, and my parents met through him. Um, and so Gail, um, my mom's 
best friend who kept up with her, even though like that friendship, you know, had its limitations. Uh, she would send gifts to us as kids. Uh, my parents could not afford to buy us anything at Christmas, but Gail would package something for my sister, myself, uh, my mom and dad, and like our Christmas tree, our little measly, like Charlie Brown <laughs> Christmas tree would have like all these gifts underneath. Um, that Gail would put together for like mm. all each of us individual stuff. And it made me not feel poor as a kid. Like I, to me, I was like, that was Christmas and I still love Christmas time. And I have to give her some credit for that, but that was my fun. You know, that was definitely one of my more fun Christmas memories. Uh, one of my fun childhood memories was this time of year, Christmas time. And Gail had a lot to do with just, you know, making me not feel poor with my parents. Um, my foster parents would never get us gifts at Christmas. And mm. Uh, in fact, if my parents sent us home with, sent us back to our foster home with any um, toys or gifts that they gave to us, maybe even things they didn't give to us, but that were from other people who gave them to us, uh, my foster mother would take those gifts, wrap them up and give them to our grandkids in front of us, my sister wow. and I, like as a way to like make us feel like crap. Um, wow. Yeah, I, we'll get into the topic of psychopathy, but um, yeah, she was a very uh, difficult character to live with and grow up with because, um, I mean, psychopathy. I'm not an expert. I should say that off the bat. I'm not a writer. I'm not a therapist. But, and I didn't even have a name for what I grew up with when I was a child. It, I didn't understand that I was in an abusive home. A lot of things you know, as you get older and become a teenager and start to evaluate and hear things discussed, you start to put names on what you've lived through. Yeah. But um, I didn't, I, I, I couldn't have told you as a kid that I was with a psychopath um, or a pedophile for my, as my foster father was. But uh, so, but just to give an overview, psychopathy, that's interesting. When I started to learn about it, um, the defining trait is a lack of empathy. I think the technical definition is antisocial personality disorder is yeah. what it's called clinically. And I've never diagnosed her. And I think people do need to be careful about diagnosing other people. But I think it is important, especially if you grew up with someone. I mean, a lot of psychopaths might, I, they're 1% of the population. So chances yeah. are, we all know someone who is and don't realize it. And a lot mm -hmm. of the media sort of um stereotype psychopaths as people who are murderers and are going to kill kill other people yeah. um which is kind of what we do with rapists too we make it like you're going to get raped in a dark right. alley and not like it's going to be your uncle or your grandfather or someone you know and yeah. trust right so like a lot of the misunderstandings about um different abusers is part of the problem is we just we don't know what to look for we don't know we have these these wrong media assumptions of what how abuse happens and what you know that it could be um could be somebody we know. I actually read um, a chart on which jobs psychopaths are most likely to have mm -hmm. in society. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. You do? Okay. So like I, when I started getting into learning about psychopathy, uh, someone named Kevin Dunton, who's a British psychologist who's written quite a few books, his story is fascinating. He ended up finding out that he himself was a psychopath by doing some brain scans and like um, realizing because it's an actual part of your brain that you yeah. know uh, processes through empathy. So like not all psychopaths are murderers. Um, yeah. It's it's a neuro. It's a, you're not neurotypical basically. Not but, all psychopaths are even bad people. Right. Exactly. A lot of them. So in the list, uh, some of them end up being actually. Is it in this list? Let me see. Uh, some end up being like neurosurgeons. I'm just not seeing it in this list. CEO is number one. Yeah. So a lot of the most rich companies in the world are run by people who don't really care for the people at the bottom very well or don't have empathy yeah. um, for them. Lawyers is number two. Very interesting. Media TV, number three. Salesperson, number four. Oh, surgeon. There we go. Number five. I wasn't crazy yeah. with thinking that in the back. And that's a great profession. Like, think yeah. about it. I, don't, I have a lot of empathy. If I was cutting into someone, I'd be so nervous. And I would be thinking about it, messing it up the whole time. And yeah. that would make me more nervous and more likely to mess it up. But somebody who could detach like that, who mm -hmm. doesn't have to worry about that, that's a great profession for, for yeah. Journalist, number six. Police officer, number seven. That explains a lot in society. Mm -hmm. um, um, number eight, I think me and you, both of us, Josiah will go, yeah, not a big surprise, but number eight on this list was clergy person. Mm -hmm. So your pastors, your spiritual leaders, that is a very sought after profession by psychopaths. They're very, it's, they're very commonly in those professions. Yeah. Uh, chief number nine, 10 civil servants. So there you go. That was the list that I ended up reading and I went, oh, that's quite interesting. Like, mm -hmm. um, 
does explain a lot on a lot of different levels on how society works too. Like not saying that everyone in these professions are that, but that they might be more represented than other professions. Basically. Yeah, and since we're talking about that uh, antisocial personality disorder, as far as I understand from my research, and I'm pretty fresh at this, but as far as I understand, antisocial personality disorder is an umbrella with psychopaths and sociopaths underneath it. And those are two yeah. types of people that don't have empathy. And the psychopath, it is something in their brain. They, they're born without the things in your brain that cause you to empathize with the other person. And if you stop to think about it, like animals can empathize, the higher order animals can empathize, like a dog can empathize with the child if the child gets hurt. A cow doesn't empathize with you. You know, like there are certain parts of the brain that fire uh, in in more herd animals, um, pack animals to, you know, initiate that instinct of we need a we need to protect the pack and we need to see ourselves as part of the pack. And if somebody in the pack hurts, then I hurt too. And for humans, most of us have that sense. Like if your child falls down the stairs or if your child bumps themselves, you'll instinctively as a parent say, ouch, usually that's the, that's a normal person, but some people won't. Some people just, they ha- they don't have that. It's not connected. And for a psychopath, it seems as though it was never connected. That part of the brain just did not happen. A sociopath yeah. is somebody, and I, I'm, again, you know, not an expert, just guessing, but I'm pretty sure that my dad is a sociopath in that things happened in his childhood where that emp- it was just easier to cut off that empathy. It was easier to stop feeling. Um, and I had part, like, part of my journey, I was journaling like crazy this time last year as I was trying to deconstruct my childhood, first of all. And there were all these stories that kept, like, impressing themselves on me things that were just so strange and i would tell them to other people and they're like it it doesn't seem like a big deal but i was like okay so i fell down the stairs as a one and a half year old and i landed on my head and my dad laughed and not only did he laugh but he he turned that into a family story that he told over and over and over and he said it was so funny that i had no neck as a baby because i fell down the stairs and squashed my neck you know like you can say, well, that's not a big deal, but it's part of a pattern. And it's part of a pattern of, that's not normal. Those sorts of things aren't normal. It's normal for a parent to feel empathy and to then to feel regret and to feel like, oh, wow, I should have done something about that. But a psychopath or a sociopath, they don't have those normal emotions. And so they have other ways of coping. And that's fine if you're a CEO or if you're a salesman. Well, it's not fine, but it might be successful. But then for a parent, and when somebody is the primary caregiver of somebody, those crucial times when you as a child should have been affirmed, should have been held, should have been comforted, comforted yeah. that did not happen, right? Yeah, definitely relate to that. I mean, I remember we, w- we would never be hugged or comforted or kissed by my foster mother. Um, we had to give her a kiss uh, goodbye mm. as we were leaving. And it was the most cold, like, peck. You know, I just, I felt like I was kissing a corpse. That's how it felt. Like there was just no warmth. Wow. But a lot of, I like, I like how you broke down them. Just pointing out that there are different, um, there are some who are uh, antisocial personality disorders. Some of it is caused by trauma where it's, Mm -hmm. it's a defense mechanism that their system has used to cope with their own trauma. And so they don't feel empathy. And there's others who literally, no matter how much therapy they went through, there's a part of their brain that actually cannot process it it's like uh if you're diabetic and you don't process insulin you know and your your liver doesn't make what you need it's it is one of those things that can be fixed and i think that's important because well at least coming from christian culture that i came from and probably maybe even in secular society i think a lot of us want to imagine people can be healed and fixed and hurt people hurt people and if we could just uncover where you were wounded and like pay attention to that and heal that we could fix you and um I think it's important to understand where people have limitations and what those limitations can be. And not all of them are going to be, you know, you can't just put a person through therapy and think they're just going to be changed. Some people, this will be a reality permanently for them. Like if yeah. I wouldn't want to be born psychopathic, I'm sure there are positives to not feeling in, but I know what it is to have empathy. And I know that if I didn't have that, that would be 
something out, a limitation. I, I had a question for you, Yes. which uh, will pull us back on track. Um, and then we can circle back more to the definition of psychopath, uh, because I do want to talk more about that. But what was the public perception of your foster parents? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so like the public perception was um, that they, I mean, they were foster parents. Oh, that's something that I wanted to, to, to I'm going to try and stay on track that question that you have, the public perception of them was that they are, I'll, I'll answer it straight. They were respected people by other people around them because look at, look at what kind of people um, take in children taken other people's children uh, and choose to help raise them and they're not their own. Like that's got to be someone who's lovely and kind and thoughtful, right? Like that would be the, the default assumption. Um, and I think, you know, it's the same for well, people make a lot of assumptions, whether it's um, you're a pastor. So you, you've got to be a good person. Like nobody would assume you might be doing things with ulterior motives or without um, like, without the motivation that people might read into things. So for us, everyone around assumed they were just the most kind, thoughtful. One of the things I've learned with psychopathy is that when you're missing empathy, you learn how to fake social cues and norms that people expect yes. of you. Mm -hmm. So publicly, at least with different people I've interacted with, they put on a different persona. Um, there's like, I mean, I've, when I've read about it, it's a mask that's worn. An acceptable yeah. mask people are comfortable seeing. Nobody wants to see someone um, talking and acting in ways that don't fit with neurotypical behavior. It makes us all uncomfortable, you know, like just that lack of empathy would feel very awkward. You know, like you said, if you fall and they act like they could care less or, you know, there's things you learn how to do or that I've noticed. My, my foster mother would, um, so one of the, the weird things that I remember from my childhood was if my social worker was around or she was at a teacher interview or something where she wasn't just dealing with us. We were outside of the home and she had to interact with the general public. Um, her voice tone changed. Mm -hmm. um, she would put in an inflection and a tone of warmth and care. That was never part of the norm in the house ever. Um, there was a lot of performative stuff. So even like we had dress clothes and play clothes. So when we went out to school or when we went to go to a dentist or some, we were doing something with a professional, we wore our, uh, dress clothes. Those literally like the titles, your dress clothes and your play clothes. When you get in the house, you wear your play clothes. And that's, that would sound normal if it was, oh, put on your jogging pants to go play in the yard if you're going to be, you know, roughing it out, you know, and tumbling in the forest or whatever. But no, it was like we had uh, clothing that was like from Salvation Army or like that was really like the ripped up poor kind of clothes that was what we wore in the house. And it felt a lot there was something about whole, the whole scenario that just felt so performative. Like if someone's yeah. coming here, you better put on your dress clothes. You know, um, this whole, how other people are going to perceive us to be was important. And she had a lot of fake, like I, if I had to like categorize or talk, explain her when I was young and I couldn't put psychopathy as a title on things, I would say she was an actress. That's mm -hmm. how I would have described her. I would have said she could win an Oscar. Like I remember when, um, the teachers got uh, wind. Well, my sister was journaling as a kid and our teacher said, whatever you put in your journal is your own private. Like I'm not telling, we're not talking about it to the class. No one will ever know. You could put your thoughts. Now what the teachers don't tell kids is that there is a law that you, they have to report abuse. And as a kid, you don't know this. So you start journaling about how you're abused. They have to, they have to call and they have yeah. to signal you to social workers. So that's what happened. And when they investigated our scenario and my social worker came by and talked to my foster mother and talked to us. Um, my foster mother cried, like, mm. like started waterworks and was like, I don't know how you kids could accuse me of this. I've, like, I've done nothing but care. Why would you make up lies about me? And like, as kids were sitting there, but I think the most horrifying part was looking at my social worker's face and realizing that she was believing everything my foster mother was saying. Like she was totally taken in by this. Like, mm -hmm. why would she just start crying about how she's being lied about if it right. wasn't like true, right? Like, so that at that moment was just one of those startling, I had like a knot in my stomach moments where I realized, because she was very physically abusive too, that like the second she left that house, we were going to be in so much trouble and we were going to get a beating, you know, mm -hmm. a really severe beating for speaking out, which is what happened. Like, I remember that door closing in slow motion when my social worker left, like a movie scene with like the, you just those traumatic moments of your childhood where you're so nervous that you could feel things going in slow time. And 
knowing. Like, she would tell us stories about how if we got taken out of this foster home. So after she beat us, she was like, you're lucky. You girls are lucky to be in this foster home because, you know, had you been some in some other foster home. In other foster homes, they lock kids in cages and feed them through a slot. So you guys are in a good foster home. So even though we were beaten, even though it was a house of horrors um, with a lot of psychological mind games and a lot of violence and a lot of verbal abuse, actually that was most of it was the psychological manipulative verbal stuff and not the physical mm -hmm. stuff. Although people tend to focus on and take the physical a lot more seriously. I know I'm side tangenting, but um, oh, oftentimes, you know, whether it's if you're married to an abuser and you come forward and to a church pastor or whatever if you don't have bruises and it's verbal people often don't take that as serious and that's yeah. a big problem because like in our home my foster home growing up there was a lot of physical violence but bulk majority of the most traumatizing stuff that went on was the verbal abuse the emotional abuse like she did physical stuff um she cut my earlobe off with a pair of scissors one time and like was telling me if i moved when she was cutting my hair that it would be my fault if she cut me um and she cut her hair short my sister and i because my foster father was a pedophile and she um felt that this was her way of making us not get touched by him for some mm. reason thinking like he would just go after the girls but he actually was not discriminate like boy girl didn't matter um so she she cut her hair like boys and tell us that it was our job like don't dress seductively for him whereas the only clothes we owned were clothes she had given us so it didn't even make sense her statements but it it became our responsibility to protect ourselves from from being molested um and yeah so all of that to say a lot of it was on the emotional side but the reason why i'm bringing this up is because i think sometimes people tend like when i tell the story about getting my earlobe cut off people are like whoa that's intense like i had to get stitches <laughs> like it was you know it was something but um and that's kind of a story makes you know people shocked but when you talk about your mom being your biological parents being put down and torn down in front of you all the time and being told you're stupid being told you're dumb being mocked constantly um most people are not always aware of how much that can affect you and i think a lot of people who deal with verbal abuse don't consider themselves abused or have a hard time starting to recognize yes. that because where there's physical bruises or you can point to, I got stitches here, or this is what they did. Everybody takes that seriously, but the emotional stuff, sometimes you can even tell yourself, well, maybe I provoke that, or maybe I, and you could do that with physical stuff too, blame yourself. But I think the emotional stuff is sometimes harder to pinpoint. And I would say that was the, the more damaging part for me anyway, was the emotional scars of just the verbal tearing down constantly was what made that a really intense home to live in and difficult to deal with. Um, yeah, because your parents are that formative, they, they are who forms you as a child. And the difference between entering into the world, you know, fully functional and, and, and healthy and whole and having a, a, um, a good sense of who you are as a person and where you're going in the world. Like I used to feel so envious of people not understanding what I was envious of, but I went to Bible school and there were all these people from these great homes. And I was thinking I came from a great home, but everything was so hard for me. I was overthinking everything. Everything was, I'd have nightmares. And just like, there's so much internal turmoil that I had. And I was like, why is it that other people can just do their work, hand in their assignments and they're done. Whereas I am just like under this cloud all the time. And in hindsight, I realized Oh, it's because I came from an abusive home. And some of the things I, he I heard you say that I resonate with is just tearing down your identity because narcissistic parents, you haven't mentioned that word, but I, I hear it coming through. They compete with their kids. They always have to be smarter than their kids. They always have to be better than their kids. And so they tear down their self-esteem instead of building up their self-esteem. Um, this thing of uh, rules and punishment but it's not punishing the child for their good. It's punishing the child for the parent's good. And the real rule of the family is don't ever make mom and dad look bad. If you make us look bad, that's when you get punished. And those sorts of rules are very, very hurtful because you can tell there's no care. Like if you, if you break something or if you, if you're irresponsible as a child and you're disciplined for that, you can sense the love in that because I want you to be a better person. But if you're disciplined and the only reason is that you embarrassed mom, 
then you uh, you that communicates deeply that you're not valuable as a person you only exist in this world to serve me and right now you did not serve me and so that's where the big punishment comes in yeah um for us there was a, a control element in the house where um Oh, there was just a lot of psychological mind games that went on. Like we had, uh, one of my foster siblings committed suicide. Um, and like just the, uh, the trauma of everything was a lot on all the kids, but one of the things she would do is play mind games. So like one kid became the favorite kid. I know in a narcissistic home that ends up happening a lot where one kid is used uh, as a tool to seek vengeance on the other kids or to keep everyone else in line. But one of our foster siblings was, uh, they would call him the prince and he was, they would make special meals for him. He was, he was um, a year younger than me and he would sit on the lazy boy in the living room. Our living room and kitchen were separated by like a half divider. You could see over into the living room at the kitchen and we would watch him sit on the lazy boy and eat a pre-made meal, whatever he asked for from my foster parents. And we were sitting at the table. um, And for anyone who's watched Titanic or knows what I'm talking about, there's a scene where like, there's this crazy strict etiquette about how you sit and how you eat. And it's like, anyway, that was my, my sitting at the dinner table, uh, vibe we had to sit perfectly have our elbows at the right spot we were we'd get beaten everything was crazy like strict in terms even in terms of finishing our whole meal or we would be beaten up i remember once throwing up because i was forced to finish a meal that i couldn't eat anymore um like just that like in fear of getting beaten if you didn't do what you were told but there was that psychological element of watching my foster brother be treated completely different even though he was a peer and um of her using that to like mess with our heads so like one time we were all in the oh and we'd have to clap for him when he was done eating like just try and imagine all your siblings clapping for your one sibling close in age who finished his whole meal at age 10 and we're like everybody clap for steve now he ate everything and we're, we're like but this is it like it was so weird it didn't even make mm-hmm. sense but that was part of like the mental sort of um using one kid against the other yes. so one time we were all, all off in the woods together and we were all making a lot of noise we were at a campground and we were having fun on our bikes and some campground people complained about the noise you're we making in the in the woods um it was some older area of the campground where they wanted their peace and quiet and when we got back to our camper trailer um we were all sent to bed and yelled at and like but she, that one, my Steve, this foster sibling who was treated as a prince was told he didn't have to go to bed. And so he kind of, as a normal kid would do, kind of like rubbing it in all of our faces as we're putting on our pajamas and getting ready for bed, like standing there smiling and smirking. And I lost it. Like I was so intimidated and scared usually to stand up to them, but I was so enraged that day that I verbally like went off and I was like, this is not fair. And I called everything out for what it was. And she um, on the spot decided, all of my foster siblings who were sent to bed with me early, uh, except for the one that was, that they no no longer had to go to bed early. And only I would have to go to bed now. And she Mm. sent them all off to like the campground, had an arcades place with like, you can buy those like one cent candies back in the day and like gums and whatever. She gave them all money, like, candy money and was like go have fun and like overdid the whole you you want you want me to play like one kid against the other i'm gonna put everyone against you now and you're gonna you're gonna suffer for speaking up and she told me like i would be locked in my room we're in the middle of a campground in nowhere so she's like you're not eating until you apologize to me Mm -hmm. you know um and one of the things my foster father loved to do at camp was uh, burn our toast on purpose on the grill, like make it charcoal black. Like I still have a hard time eating anything that's slightly burnt because he loved to burn our food and then watch us eat it. Burnt mm-hmm. to know that we'd, we'd get beaten if we didn't finish our food, but that was disgusting. Like try eating toast that's like black, you know? Um, but I complained. I was like, Steve can eat whatever he wants. You know, he could have oatmeal. I have to eat burnt toast. She said to me, I'm going to make you eat oatmeal until it comes pouring out of your ears. And from that day forward, I had, I was only allowed eating oatmeal for breakfast, which I liked actually. And I was so happy about that. Like I was like, of all the punishments I've ever been given, this is the best one. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I hated cold cereal. And as a kid, I would gag even eating that. So I was like, I was in heaven with that eat oatmeal every day till it comes pouring out, pouring out of your ears and never came out of my ears. But anyway, she sent all my foster siblings to go buy, um, go get some candy and, and have fun. And my biological sister, my little sister saved all of her candy. She hid it. And when she came into bed that night, cause we were sleeping in the same area, she like gave me all of her candy and she's like, you did a good job. <laughs> you know, like she was like, I'm proud of you for standing up, you know? And that was really sweet. Uh, I still remember that as being one of those really, like I was proud I stood up for myself at that moment. But, yeah. um, 
there's a lot of mind games. So I definitely understand the whole punishment used as a way to just mess with your head and not really as out of concern for you. Um, and also using, using your siblings, pitting your siblings against one another so that those people that should be your friends, you know, you should be closest yeah. to your siblings. And then that can become even, you know, a source of strength and a source of self-empowerment, but narcissists will pit you against one another. Um, and then, you know, your worst enemies become your siblings. That's how it was growing up. I became great friends with my siblings once I left the home. Uh, but growing up, we were not very close because, well, I was the, I was the special child most of the time. And so they resented me. Um, but then I also felt additional pressures because, well, that's another story for me, but, um, this, there's so many mind games I'm hearing. And then those mind games then leave their, their mark in you when you should have been nurtured and taught what is healthy, what is good, what is beneficial and, and how to confront the world in a healthy and a good way to get the best out of the world. Those things weren't put in place at crucial times. Yeah. Definitely, like relating on just how it ends up mentally uh, impacting you. I think for me, a lot of it came as an adult. Uh, like I thought, I I thought I escaped all the abuse and came out very well. Like considering what was thrown at me, I felt like, wow. And and I gave credit to God and Jesus because that um, my parents would bring me to church on Sundays, and that's where you know I had this personal relationship with God that gave me a lot of peace and a lot of strength. Um, and that helped me, like that prevented me from killing myself as a kid. Mm. You know, that was one of the things that prevented me from committing suicide. Um, so deconstruction is something you've gone into, but definitely hard and tricky when that was such a source of comfort and something you leaned on to get through and to cope with things. Uh, that was one of the ways I stayed alive was praying to God and, and feeling like I was comforted by God and feeling like at least if my foster mother said I was stupid and worthless, well, God thought I was created in his image and wonderful. And I mean, I didn't grow up in fundamentalism, so that was helpful. <laughs> um, and that's such probably another topic for like, just in terms of the being told you're horrible and an awful human being as thankfully that wasn't part of my church teaching when I was young, but it was evangelical. Um, so there's still a lot to unpack there, uh, but not to diverge too far, but definitely like feeling as a kid, like coming out of that and feeling like, wow, I, you know, God kept me from, you know, I didn't commit suicide like my foster sibling. And actually he was the one that was treated like the prince. So when you were talking about the stress that puts on you yeah. to be considered the good kid, but pitted against all your siblings, that pressure was way too much on him to handle. Like at the end of the day was, and you, you know, we always envied him for being that special kid. But I think that's one of the things I learned is how, how much stress that can put on you. Like yeah. we were beaten physically. He never, they never put a hand on him, but just that, the, the unhealthiness of not having that nurturing and what that looked like. We also, my sister and I got to go home and get a break on weekends and he didn't, he was adopted. So that really played into when, like when you have no break from what you go through in your day-to-day life, um, but as an adult, I guess I'm starting to realize the different ways that continues to have an impact, um, the different ways that, that, that you have to heal even as a grown-up, things that will trigger childhood things. You know, like um, for myself, uh, it's abandonment came up as a pandemic happened because, um, you know, I would go home on weekends to get a break and I would feel safe in my, with my parents. And then I'd be back in my foster home. And it was, it was a difficult, hypervigilant environment where I had to constantly be on alert and didn't feel safe. We've talked a lot about your mom. Um, Can we talk a little bit about your dad, your foster dad? And um, like, I, I don't want to go anywhere that would feel triggering to yourself. Um, you mentioned pedophilia. We know what that means. Um, what, what did that, what public persona did he project and how was that different than what happened in secret? And then since clearly you continue to live with him. So how did he rationalize that? How did he, you know, how, how did, how did he behave towards you in such a way that, um, it, it was okay in his mind to do what he was doing? So I should preface this by saying that he never laid a hand on myself or my biological sister. Um, However, um, that wasn't the case for the majority of the kids in the home. And part of the protection my sister and I had is that we had a social worker and we went home on weekends. But any kid that was adopted or 
um, fostered without um, the privilege of going home. Let's say they were fostered, but their biological parents lived across the country and never came to see them. Um, those, we, we witnessed abuse, unfortunately, in the home. We, um, some of it wasn't obvious to us as kids and their memories that sort of, you know, you, you, you flash back to as an adult and you say like, um, what was happening under that bed sheet with my foster sibling in that scenario that I remember, but like I was a kid and I couldn't put words on things and I didn't, you know, like you just feel like things are off, but you can't really identify what's going on. And then as an adult, you, you talk amongst each other, you hear the stories and you find out well, this is what happened to this one. And this happened to this one. Um, I had a lot of foster brothers act out and try to physically aggress me sexually because they had been abused by my foster father. So that was part of the whole cycle of sexual abuse in the home was like, I wasn't always safe even from my foster siblings because they had been acted out on and they were passing that on that not being able to process what they went through. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but in terms of him, uh, we had very, like, it was very odd because we weren't, we weren't really in, I talk about my foster mother a lot because she was the one in control of the home and he was a more passive figure in the background who, she knew what was going on and I compare her to like somebody who's like, um, like feeding mice to a snake is the best analogy I could come up with. I'm sorry to laugh. It's one of the ways that I sometimes cope with the really dark, hard parts of like everything that I went through. It's I'm not the most appropriate reaction that I laugh, but I, it's, it's, no, I think that's, a, I think that's a, that's a, a typical response. Um, yeah. because it's either you laugh or you cry is the saying yeah. When you when you confront yeah. the absurd or the what is beyond reason, it is normal yes. to laugh, and we understand you don't actually think it's funny. It's just like so far beyond what should be normal that yeah yeah I get it yeah thank you thank you I know that like those who've been through some trauma probably get it the most um, and others might be like why are you laughing at something so horrific um, yeah it's a coping thing for sure I so sh- she was. Um, she would, you know, provide him safety, uh, like almost set up the parameters so he wouldn't get caught um, by yeah. kind of helping him to know who was off limits and not, not maybe not, I don't even know what was spoken in their bedroom or between the two of them, but definitely she was very protective of my sister and I not being alone with him. And I, she didn't afford that protection to the kids who were not going home on weekends or not adopted. Like the adopted kids didn't have that sort of protection. Um, he had access to them. So we were a little more sheltered from being, so there was an, even as a kid, there was a sort of, he would act very awkward around us. So there was no fatherly anything. He looked very nervous around us. Like, um, he seemed, he, I don't know how else to put that. He seemed very nervous. Uh, if he had to walk us somewhere or go somewhere with us, he had always a distance that he would sort of keep, um, walking alongside of us. And, um, so that was really hard. Um, just, it was, it was really weird. She was in control and she sort of did most of the talking and relating to us. And he was sort of more of a distant figure in that household, especially regarding us, my sister and I. Um, so, you know, but yeah, as you get older, you sort of piece together the different, different things you saw that didn't make any sense. Maybe that didn't even involve you that your siblings went through. And, um, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot to think about, you know, growing up in a home like that. And I think probably for a lot of people who grew up in abusive homes, there are a lot of things that you didn't, weren't able to process as a kid, or you didn't know what was exactly happening. It just felt weird or awkward or off or like things were not normal, but you didn't know as a kid, you didn't even have terms like pedophile or have any understanding of what those things are to be able to identify anything that was going on. Yeah. So, yeah. So what effect do you think that lack of fatherly figure or that strangeness from him affected you growing up? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, I think, so if I'm going to go like with dad, mom, that kind of stuff, overall, just not having any parents very um, on level with me or able to be there for me. Um, Like when we go home on weekends, we were, our social worker would often put in the notes that we acted like parents to our parents because they needed us to help them with basic things, um, which is why we were placed. Uh, We were put in our foster home, they said it was to give us stability and there was nothing in that home that could provide that. So I think to this day, 
if somebody tells me that I'm strong, I have an aversion to hearing that I'm strong because mm-hmm. I feel like with that goes a feeling of you're strong. So you should be able to take whatever you're going through. Like you, the, you almost like nobody needs to look out for how you're doing because yeah. you're a strong person that ha- in me has left sort of a, you know, sometimes I need to be taken care of too. And I think also I was a big sister to my little sister in an abusive environment. So I played a mom role to my little sister when I was a kid yeah. instead of, and I, I had no big sister to do that role with me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had a, an older foster sister, but she was very absent from the home. Um, she ran away young and a lot of others, like she wasn't very present. So like, I didn't really have anyone looking it out for me per se, or taking care of me. So I think that has left me and I, I have an adverse reaction to that word strong. Um, trying to think of other ways that I definitely sense that lack of parent parental, um, there for me Oh, stuff is just going to pop in my head. I'm sure as we talk, but um yeah that's one that comes right to the top of my head also oh healing in terms of uh feeling emotion so there that that's one that was it was like at the tip of my tongue and in the right in my head and I just wasn't able to pull it but now I'm thinking about it um I got beat up for crying when my parents would drop us off on okay. uh you know when our, when our weekend was done as a, as a child you just wanted to like be where you were safe so I would start crying and it would make my foster mother look bad so she would beat us Um, and she beat me for crying. So I had to learn very young to repress sadness. And it came out in me as a, as a child and as a teenager, as anger, that feeling was very accessible to me, anger. And I remember punching my locker when, like when my sister would get beat up or I'd get beat up, I'd especially her, I was very protective of her because I played a mom role in some ways to her. But like, if she got hit, and I showed up at school, I would start denting my locker as a way to cope with my feelings. But I couldn't feel sadness. It was not accessible to me at all. I could only feel anger. And I remember reading at one point um, something that said, anger is sad's bodyguard. I don't know if you've ever heard that before. Mm, um, haven't. That makes sense. That, that was so, it like opened, like it was like, oh, wow, I needed to hear that, that anger is sad's bodyguard. Because sad was inaccessible as an emotion. And even today when I cry, it's something that I've only had healing over like the last five years. Actually, when I started talking um, about the sexual abuse aspect of that home, foster siblings, different things I went through. um, That's when I, you know, people close to me were like, oh, you know, you're very open with your story. You've never shared that per se. And I remember um, it's actually started to make me question a lot of my faith concepts at that point, because one of my coping mechanisms was, you know, everything I've gone through, God is using it for good. And that's, you know, everything you go through, God has purposed it to make you stronger, better. And then I never had an answer for like, well, what about people who are raped? Would that really be part of God's plan for like helping kids in the long run? And and the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, that is a horrific thing to think, tell, or teach anyone. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, I started thinking through these stories I heard about gang rapes of women in countries where like they couldn't walk anymore when it was done. And like what it looks like to stamp everything as planned by God for your benefit onto it and how horrific that is in cases of abuse and how I had internalized that message that, you know, everything happens for your good or, you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. There's a very secular uh, way that that gets put out and, and going, no, some stuff is just horrific and trying to put a positive spin on it is really damaging. So I think once I acknowledged that point right there and allowed myself to feel deeply hurt over what I went through as a kid, like saying that that was, there's no good reason for any of that. That shouldn't happen period. um, That's when I started to regain a sense of sadness that I never, like I wasn't able to access through all of my young adult years, my teen years. Like it was that feeling sad. I get a lump in my throat and it feel like pressure and like something was wrong, but I couldn't cry. And I couldn't yeah. feel that sadness. Um, so that's something that today when I cry, because <laughs> I can, and that like has been slowly dethawing in me, the more I'm open and the more I'm willing to share my story or talk about things. It's a healing thing for me. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, I'm able to cry now. And I always feel like as much as it hurts to cry, it's like, a, you know, sadness, is, it's not pleasant. Nobody wants to feel pain and sadness. It's, mm-hmm. It was, it's like a, I mean, numbness is a very, uh, it's a body's way of helping you cope and get through things. If you're numb, you can charge through the pain easier of what you're going through. And that helped me to get by. But it's it's not the greatest coping mechanism because if your leg is numb, it's a weird feeling. You walk around and you're hitting into things and you don't feel it, but you need 
pain as a, uh, a help to help balance you with wherever you are. Yeah. So in my adult life, I think I was impacted by not being able to access pain and sadness, even in my responses to being hurt, uh, to be able to, to be able to say, you know, that makes me sad or that hurts me rather than getting angry has been uh, one of those ways I've gotten healing as an adult, or I've learned to undo some of those unhealthy um, things that were built into me by being beaten for crying. Um, and whenever I cry now, there's a piece of me that's proud of myself or that yeah. looks at it as a sense of healing that's gone down in myself. Well, I was going to say congratulations when you said you were starting to cry. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. And a quote that, um, like anger is your body's way of saying something is wrong. You know, Christians, we tend to think, you know, don't be angry. Angry, anger is bad, but anger is good. It tells you something's wrong and grief tells you that something's moving to the past. And I've learned to honor the grief and love the grief because it means something is, we're letting it go. Um, and when you don't have that ability to grieve and to weep, then it's not moving to the past. And I mean, this is a heavy connection, but as we mentioned at the beginning, psychopaths and or sociopaths, there are people that had trauma in their childhood and then they never learned to let go. And then they end up hurting people later on. You mentioned a numb leg and, and bumping into things. I mean, if you leave yourself numb, you can bump into people. And so it's great when um, you're able to feel that pain and then let that pain go. And it's tremendously difficult. Um, the other thing I wanted to pick up on, and it's not fair and it's not, I, I don't appreciate either this message, this quick and trite message that God you know, everything is in God's plan and it's all for the better and it's all good. I mean, there's things that, um, like it might be true in a broader sense. Like if we're talking really philosophically, like, well, you know, God created this world for these reasons, you know, and, and you can have these discussions about, is it better that the Holocaust happened, but if it didn't happen, there would be no free will, we'd all be robots. You know, you can have these sorts of discussions, kind of science fiction, kind of big picture discussions, right? And it kind of makes sense. But then you zoom into individual people, and it's just so wrong to say to somebody, what happened was for your good, when clearly it was not for your good. You need to talk scriptures are very clear about evil, human evil. And you just need to say that was an evil thing that happened because of an evil person. And, and there is no redeeming quality to it other than that there will be justice, you know? Um, but I, I, I do just really react against some of those trite things that, that people say um, to, to try and make everything make sense in a five minute soundbite when life is not a five minute soundbite. I think uh, sometimes too. It, it, oh, sorry to cut you. Go ahead. No, it's fine. I, I was going to say. I think sometimes uh, when a, we were talking about processing grief and how important that is, and and trite sound bites and all that. I think in church circles sometimes that um, we haven't really been taught what grief looks like and how to grieve. Like no. I remember realizing only later in life that there's books of lamentations, and why did we never open those in church? It was like focus on the the, the you know the happy good things and don't. Um, don't dwell on being negative emotions. And I, I only learned what the term spiritual bypassing was like a year ago, just that mm. labeling emotions as negative, like you said, sadness, anger. Um, it also makes it impossible to carve out space for grief when you do that, when you try and let's look at what's positive. Let's focus on what's, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure. Every, if anything's lovely or praiseworthy, think on such things. Mm -hmm. That kind of using that to bypass all the negative emotions quote unquote negative emotions. See, I'm just doing it now. But like mm -hmm. that idea that anger or sadness is inappropriate is so unhelpful. And it, it, it definitely fosters abuse because you can't address it because you're not supposed to talk about it. But it also doesn't give place for people who have gone through traumatic things to process what they've gone through and to feel that they can be free. And when I, I know for myself, when I look through the Psalms, I only learned about, oh, what's the word? Imprecatory Psalms. I'm trying to think of, there's different words for like the Psalms that basically wish evil on their enemies that 
express the desire for vengeance or even that um, accuse God. I mean, I think it was beautiful for me when I realized that when Jesus was on the cross and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that gets so much discussion. Like, did God ever really forsake Jesus? Did he turn his back and all kinds of beliefs that form around that? But I think the context is so amazing because Jesus was a Jew and he was quoting Psalm 21, I believe. And when you read the whole, maybe I'm quoting the wrong one. I think it was 21, but whichever one has the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A Jew would know that whole Psalm and they would know the context of it. And it was a Psalm about feeling abandoned by God. And it was a bigger message. And he was quoting something that felt comforting to him to recognize in that moment of pain, of no, of identifying with other people's pain and, and people who have felt that way before him. And I think we don't often take the time to recognize the importance of a place and a space, even in, in a spiritual context for that. Um, uh, I've, I've been a part of a, a new church in the last two years. I never thought I'd be back in church, but that's a whole other story. Um, but one of the things they do, uh, that I went to for the first time last year, they had a, the longest night of the year and it's, uh, the winter solstice. It's literally the longest, uh, mm-hmm. night, uh, hours wise for sunlight, right? It's the shortest sunlight, uh, sunlight hour day, which has the longest night is mm-hmm. the 21st of December. And they would hold a service that was all about grief. It was a chance in it. It was a very meditative and um, made in a very reflective sort of you're sitting by yourself and like they'll guide you through stuff, but it's you're sitting individually and able to really reflect on grief, thinking about people you miss, thinking about recognizing deaths. You've experienced uh, personal pain. It's a a chance to in a communal way, um, but still very individualistic because grief is a personal thing, Um, but to be able to reflect in in a a spiritual context, in in a church context, which is like for me, it was mind blowing because that's so much grief as a kid and church definitely was not a place where we touched on any of that and had felt like we had space carved out to process through negative quote unquote negative emotions sadness or anger or grief um but i think that's been eye-opening is just to see yeah the bible has space for grief it there's there's books there's books called lamentations there's yeah psalms written out from those angles that we we don't know what to do with it and i guess that's where i was going to i think for people who haven't gone through trauma um it's a very difficult to process something you don't understand and so people tend to read their own scenarios into other people's and because they've never been through something and they're so shocked and horrified by what you've been through they make it about themselves and are like okay i like I don't even want to go there because your, your experience is freaking me out. So like, let's just skip this. Let's just focus on something more positive. And for some people, focusing on the positive is a good way to, for them to deal with grief because they maybe are not ready to get into it. Maybe um, it would be too overwhelming at that moment. I know for myself, some grief I could not access until I was in a safe place. I could not go there until my life around me was safe enough for me to process. So thinking positive might be a good strategy for temporary um, or maybe even for certain individuals. But for myself, eventually for healing, I needed to be able to speak speak things for what they were. and um, Putting, so I think people around who haven't gone through anything and are a little traumatized by hearing about your trauma because they don't know how to help or where to start might default to the, let's just, you know, focus on what's good and positive instead of understanding that, you know, people need space for their grief. They need a place where others are not intimidated and not trying to shut them down for speaking about what they've gone through. And that takes, that takes some emotional maturity because the thing with other people's grief is you're not there to solve it for them. You can't fix mm-hmm. it. You can't put a Band-Aid on it. You got to just sit with someone in their grief. And that's uncomfortable. Like, I think we're all comfortable if we know the solution to helping someone. Like, if I know yeah. someone's hurting and I can do X, Y, Z for them, that's easy. That's fine. But if someone is just going to sit there in pain and I'm empathetic, if mm-hmm. I'm, I am a very empathetic person, so I know this is hard. When someone is suffering and your only job is just to sit with them in it. It's not a comfort. Yeah, you know, that's you're literally sharing someone's suffering with them, and it, yeah. it makes things easier on the other person. That is helpful, but there's no words to say to fix it. There's no yeah. easy solution, and it. Yeah, I think we're often not taught how to just sit with people in their grief and give them space to feel things we don't like watching them feel. We want them to get better and feel better, but by trying to like jump that spiritually bypass it, it doesn't uh, doesn't help at all. All right. So Gail, I've really appreciated uh, all that you have said. Um, and I really appreciate your vulnerability and sharing a lot of your childhood and 
what it felt like being raised by a psychopathic foster mother um, and a pedophilic dad who really was just absent except for this awkward sexual energy uh, and some of the effects that that left on you into adulthood. Uh, I'm feeling like we're not done. And so I'd love to do a part two with you. Um, would you be good with that? That sounds good. Okay. For that. So I'm going to wrap it up here because I don't want to get our podcast to get too long. And then we're going to jump over to a part two and we're going to go more into how did you, how did religion help you, but also become difficult for you as it was, as you were trying to find health and then um, what, what did no contact look like? I'd love to hear more about how you got up the courage to cut ties with these abusive people and maybe some of the pushback that you had from that and then kind of how you established yourself as an adult to try and figure out what is healthy, what is good uh, to move forward. So if you're good with that, I'm just going to tie it off here and then we'll do a part two. Thanks a lot. Sounds good. Thank you so much for listening. And although I have a vulnerability hangover, I'm really appreciative of the fact that we can have this conversation. As Josiah mentioned, we split our conversation into two parts, so be sure to come back next week for part two. And that about does it for today's episode. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app. And if you don't have one yet, head over to don'treatthispodcast.com to see a list of all the apps we're available on. Share this episode with friends and family, rate and review us on iTunes, and follow us on social media. We're at Don't Repeat This Podcast on Facebook and Instagram, and Don't Repeat Pod on Twitter. On behalf of my co-hosts, Nate and Vicky, this has been Don't Repeat This. So hopefully, even though you might not be able to repeat it at a dinner table, I wish for you a safe place where you could talk about this without stigma or shame. And as you seek health and healing, I'm cheering you on. <laughs>